what a great old hymn uh, brought to life again for many of us by hearing it done with a different uh, melody. And uh, thank you, Kristen. That was beautiful. Thank you, choir. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. You'll find that on page 995 in the Bibles that we have for you in the pews. Two weeks ago, um, we started a new elective called Think Different. Now, let me just say for our English teachers in our midst, we know technically it should be Think Differently, but it is based on an old Apple marketing campaign from the late 90s, early 2000s called Think Different. Now, that's out of the way. Let me tell you why I bring that up. One of the core values that we as a congregation feel very strongly about is being a multi-generational church. We want people of all ages in this congregation, from the youngest to the oldest. We really do believe that that's biblical, as we'll see this morning, but also very important. But it's difficult at times because Different generations do think differently, and so sometimes it's easy to be critical of the other generations if they think differently about an important subject than you think. So let me give you a couple of examples. Younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, can look at older generations, traditionalists, boomers, and uh, Gen Xers, in this way, legalistic, Judgmental, close-minded, afraid of change, and cultural Christians. Oh, that's painful. Now, before we older generations in the congregation get bent out of shape about that, let me read you some of the ways we tend to think of the younger generations. Poor work ethic, self-centered, woke, soft, and no moral absolutes. So... You can tell we've got work to do if we're going to live together in a way that really does please the Lord. And that's where I'm really going with this. In John 17, which is just one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture and one of the most important prayers in all of Scripture, Christ prays to his Father for us, all of his followers, down through the ages, that we might be one. In, order, in other words, that we might truly live in a way that reflects our unity in Christ. But here's why he does that. Here is the purpose for us to live as one, so that the world may believe. Uh, you see, on a, in a negative way, if we as followers of Christ are divided, then we don't say anything positive to the world that they need to hear or want to see. But if we can, as followers of Christ, be different in some of the ways we approach things, even disagree at times, but do so in a way that is really uh, loving and, and kind, do so in a way that reflects unity rather than disunity, uh, then uh, there's something attractive to the world about that. Something that, uh, that they want themselves and yet find it very difficult to get. As I said, we're going to be different. And yet, um, what you see in Scripture on occasion, and you see it in, in, in Acts chapter 2, is, is God's people not agreeing on everything. We never will this side of heaven, but being united around those things that really matter. Acts 2, 
We read that they are united around the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then as a result, listen to what happens. They had favor with all the people. In other words, not just fellow believers, but the watching world looked on with great pleasure and delighted in what they saw. And then we read the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So one of the things we have to realize, one of the most important ways to fulfill the mission of God that he's put us on this earth to fulfill is to live as though we are truly one in the spirit of God. We are truly one. We're told to maintain the unity of the spirit. And when we do that, especially, this is so key now in the era of cancel culture. When we do that, even when we disagree about a number of things, it is an attractive thing for the world to see. There is something different about them uh, that is not humanly typical or even humanly possible. As a church, we have got to show this community and the world that we can be all ages with lots of different ideas, but united around the things that really matter. And even when we disagree, to do so in a way that reflects the unity of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do this morning is to read a brief passage from 2 Timothy. And as I read that, I want you to see the the different generations that are represented here. And then I'm going to speak to that. And then what I want to do is talk about one main issue that doesn't divide us ultimately on what we believe, but does tend to divide the generations on how we are to go about making a difference. So, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's that spirit that we need to put into practice. Would you pray with me? Father, enable us to live through the power of your spirit. You have united us. You have made us one. Now enable us through your power uh, to maintain that unity, to show the world that there is a beautiful way to live because there is a beautiful Savior who gave his life for us and sent his spirit into us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said, what I want to do, at least for a few minutes, is to walk through this passage and just point out some of the many generations that are mentioned here. And then I want to talk about 
the challenge, as it were, for us to be a multi-generational church and to, to be able to, to be one even when we disagree over some of the ways we go about ministry. But the importance of this, again, of being a multi-generational church is that we do learn from each other. We do show the world that we can be united. And, and there is then uh, the, the consequence of that. The world may believe there really is a God who has changed our lives. And, and what I want to say today, some of it comes from a man named Brian Chapel, who was uh, president at one point of Covenant Seminary and has spent so many years of his life seeking to train church leaders to help them see the differences that different generations bring to the table. You know, think about it this way. You have to ask the question, if we, if we read the same Bible, we believe in the same confessions of faith, then why is it that sometimes we have different kind of views of the world and even different approaches to ministry? Brian has spent so much of his life trying to help the different generations understand each other for the purpose of being able to live together as one to show the world that there is a different, better way. So, let's look briefly at this passage and touching on some of the different generations represented here. Verses 1 and 2, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus writes to Timothy, my beloved child. In 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul calls Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So, uh, the, the idea there is that more than likely, Paul was used by God to lead Timothy to the Lord. And so, you've got an older saint, Paul, ministering to a younger man, Timothy. And it's not out of obligation, and it's not just a matter of these two men tolerating each other. It is the beautiful relationship that you should see when you have a godly father loving his son well, and that godly son, in turn, loving his father well. That's what you have here represented in these verses. You have a, re a relationship of one man in one generation and another in a much younger generation. And what you see is they know each other really well. In verse 2, Paul writes, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's part of his greeting. But, but those words aren't just throwaway words as though you always put that there to everybody. See, Paul knew Timothy. He knew exactly what he needed in that moment. And, and he sends the, the prayer, as it were, for those things for his beloved child. And we see in verse 3 that Paul remembers Timothy constantly in his prayers night and day. So there's this wonderfully close, deep, personal relationship between two men who, who, who love and need each other. But there's something else in verse 3. Paul's faith is not new. There's Paul's generation. There's Timothy's generation. And then standing behind Paul, we read that his faith goes back to his ancestors or to literally to his forefathers. They influenced Paul's walk with the Lord by their example. Then in verse 4, we see something really, really important. 
And this may be one of the most important things we, we learn this morning. It's not just Paul ministering to Timothy, but it's Timothy, a younger man, also ministering to Paul. See, we older folks need younger folks, and younger folks need older folks. That's why God wants his church to be multi-generational, because he gives to different generations different perspectives and different understandings. With Timothy, we read, as I, this is Paul, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. That last time, see, they, they traveled together. The last time they parted, Timothy couldn't hold back the tears. And, and now Paul longs for the joy that comes when he's in Timothy's presence. There's a delight of the two men when they are there together with each other. And, and Paul is saying, I need the joy that comes from being with you. And if you go to Philippians 2, which we, we won't do, you read that Timothy really does serve Paul. And, and then Paul refers to their relationship in this way. I have no one like him. And that's, that is a deep relationship. Older man and younger man, both needing the other. And then, then in verse 5, Paul speaks of the influence of Timothy's, Timothy's mother and grandmother. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So, a lot more could be said. There's actually more here in this passage, but I want to stop there. You you get the idea. In these few verses, God shows us his model for the church. This is what he expects. All generations need the ministry of the other generations, and all generations need to recognize this. He knows we need each other. The question is, do we know we need each other? And are we willing to listen to each other, to learn from each other? Now, I think it would be easy to say, well, of course. That's great. I like that. Let's do it. But here's the problem. We live in a culture which, in which generations really do have a lot of different ideas. Different generations really do think differently. And so it becomes at times a challenge for us to understand each other. Uh, and sometimes we get sideways with each other. And we just think the other generation has it wrong. Now, each generation has good and bad. But I want to show you by looking at one issue for the rest of our time this morning. I want to show you how different generations kind of get things differently. So, if you're 50 years or older, if you're 50 years or older, you were raised at a time when you were part of the majority Christian culture. In other words, You were raised at a time when there were more Christians than non-Christians in the United States. Not everyone was a Christian, but most were, and you knew that. And so, what happened then when cultural influences started to appear that threatened the values and the, the things that are so important to you, the way of life that you hold dear, the great push of the churches and the politicians who represent us was to stop the erosion of what's happening in our culture. And to do that, we simply needed to activate the moral majority. There were more Christians than non-Christians, so activate the moral majority, and we can 
turn back or stop the erosion in our culture. But again, the assumption is that we were living in a majority Christian culture. And the obligations then of Christians who were in the majority was basically to take control of the culture, both by ministry and by participating in the political process. If we can take control of the culture, we can stop the erosion. So, if you went to high school in the 1970s, 1980s, maybe even a little bit of the 1990s, you probably were familiar with a movement called the Moral Majority. Their goal was to stop the erosion by motivating the Christian majority to take control of the culture. And there was one main effort that the moral majority focused on. It was the effort to stop one main moral failure. This was the issue above all issues that needed to be stopped. Now, what was that issue? Well, it was abortion. The Right to Life movement united us as Christians across many demographics uh, as a part of an effort to change the culture. There were other significant issues, but because of the changes that occurred so quickly in our culture around abortion, this became the number one issue that the moral majority sought for us to unite around and to oppose or to stop. Okay, so if you're 50 years or older, that's kind of your experience in this country. You are part of the majority Christian culture. Now, I want to talk about those of us, I wish I were in this category, I'm not, I'm saying us as our congregation, those of us who are 40 or younger. Now, I know I'm leaving out 10 years, but just kind of bear with me. Those in our congregation who are 40 or or younger, your experience is very, very different because you don't live in this country at a time when Christians are in the majority. We are now in the minority. And you've known that. And so for you, it's never been that the way to go about dealing with these issues that are contrary to what we believe, it's never been your way to think, well, we just need to take control of the culture with the numbers that we have in this country because you understand or are learning to understand that we don't have those numbers anymore. Our political influence, for instance, has diminished. So instead of taking control, oftentimes younger Christians uh, think um, of themselves as being missional and, and the goal then is to make the gospel credible to an unbelieving culture. Instead of focusing on stopping the erosion, it, your focus is, is to figure out ways to make Jesus credible in a culture that has turned against Christianity. And so what you want to do is to find ways to help give credibility to the gospel. And, and so here's where we begin to find some differences in how older generations and younger generations have typically gone about dealing with abortion. Younger generations, followers of Christ, still believe in the sanctity of every life made in the image of God. 
But the answer to abortion may not be lifelines and organizing voting. Instead, the answer may be adoption. And so what you hear oftentimes from younger pastors is more about adoption than you hear about abortion. Now, is that a generalization? Yes, but there's a lot of truth to that. And, and I think from that simple perspective, you can see that we need both approaches. We do want the laws to change. We want laws to protect life. At the same time, we want to take care of life ourselves. And so we need to listen to each other because we do approach these issues in different ways and we need to learn from each other because in that example at least both approaches are very valid okay I want to take this a step further younger Christians are asking a very legitimate question do pro-lifers protect every kind of life and I'm going to not go as broad as some of our younger Christians do I'm going to focus on this same issue But the question that we need to ask that is really arising from younger Christians is do we, as pro-lifers, protect every kind of life? In other words, do we care as much about the mother as we care about the child that may be aborted? Now, let me just stop and, and so you don't misunderstand. Younger Christians, for the most part, do still believe that life personhood begins at conception. The Bible teaches unequivocally unequivocally that from the moment of conception, you have a new living soul made in the image of God. One of the examples from Scripture, and we could go to many places, but one of the examples from Scripture that is absolutely um, convincing to me is Psalm 51.5. David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, there's a lot we could say there, but what he's saying is, look, even from conception, I was a sinner. And you cannot be a sinner unless you are a person. And so, it is just a a poetic way of David saying, from the very beginning, uh, we are alive. We are a person. So, Being pro-life means protecting the unborn child, and that means protecting the unborn child, if at all possible, from the moment of conception. But to be fully pro-life, we also need to treat the mother with a great deal of mercy. And this is a place where, at times in the past especially, I think uh, the pro-life movement has failed. I think that has changed greatly over the last years. But to be fully pro-life, we have got to treat the mother with mercy, which means you and I have to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of a, a mother who is often ashamed, alone, and scared. A young pastor asks these questions. What if it were us or our loved ones who are faced with the realities of unexpected pregnancy. In other words, put yourself in in their shoes before we judge or before we just callously focus on the law and don't really care for the mother who is contemplating abortion. What if we were the pregnant, unmarried woman living below the poverty line with no ability to fund 
this new life? What if we were the college student who was a victim of date rape? What if we were the woman with a husband or boyfriend demanding that we take care of it or else? What if we were the teenage girl whose parents have made it clear that they will not support the birth or adoption but will only support termination? Otherwise, she is on her own. What if it were your sister or your daughter? These are all real situations. And so, again, we need to ask the question, can we put ourselves in their shoes and be satisfied simply getting the law on our side for the child in the womb? Is it enough to vote our views? Is it enough to to put our views on Facebook? Is it enough to, to put a pro-life bumper sticker on our ear, on our car? Well, it's not. If we'll put ourselves in the place of the woman who is contemplating abortion, it is never enough to do those things. Is it wrong to do those things? No. But it is not enough. We have got to care about the mother and the child. Man, I deeply respect, said for those of us who are pro-life, there are two vulnerable people here the pregnant woman and the child within her womb, and we have a responsibility to consider both. Now, one of the encouraging things here at Westminster is that we have a number of our members who are deeply involved in the pro-life movement. And as you heard moments ago from Tanya, there is concern for both the child and the mother. In fact, You saw tears when Tanya was talking about the mother, and rightfully so. We should shed tears for both. But isn't it interesting that we have members of our church from all ages who are working together, and so all of their generational views come together at different times to help us be uh, more fully biblical in our approach loving our neighbor well, not just the child, but also the mother. I wish I could talk much more on this, but I do want to end this morning uh, speaking to those of you who have been touched by abortion uh, using the words of another younger pastor. God is the judge. We know that. He does hate abortion, but he's also the king who loves even those who participate in it. And so hear this good news. To anyone and everyone who has ever aborted a child, supported abortion, encouraged abortion, performed abortion, permitted abortion, or done nothing about abortion, God forgives entirely. God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. It is gone. God forgives entirely. He also heals deeply. God doesn't desire for you or anyone else to live with the pain of regret. Uh, It's right, of course, to hate sin in, in our past, but don't let it rob you of the peace that God wants for you right now in the present. Uh, Remember what Jesus said to the woman who had lived an immoral lifestyle. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. To everyone who trusts in Christ, remember this. In Christ, you are not guilty. 
And there is no condemnation for you. And this is true whether you have had one abortion or five. This is true whether you have medically performed thousands of abortions or legally permitted millions. You do not walk around with a scarlet letter on your forehead. For God does not look at you and see the sin, the guilt of abortion. Instead, he looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, you are such a good God. There is no one like you. There is no God like you who does forgive, who does heal, and who does help. Father, as a congregation, may we be light in the midst of darkness. May we be those who extend mercy both to the mother and to the child. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.